journey through the final hours that Jesus uh, spent with his disciples. And I said on Tuesday evening, it'll be a slow journey because we'll take six weeks to travel uh, what Jesus and his disciples spent only a few hours experiencing. But they're not just any few hours, they are the final few hours that Jesus spent. And chapters 13 to 17 of John's uh, Gospel, where Jesus is sharing a meal with them, tells us of the things that Jesus talked to them about. Sharing with them things that above all mattered most. He was leaving them. The mission would soon be theirs. The keys of the kingdom would soon be placed in their hands. So what did they need to know? What did they need to hear? What did they need to hear again? What did they need to be reminded of that they might go out and continue the mission that Christ had started? We knew that it was our last time to speak with someone, to spend with someone, then how careful we would be, how calculated, how considered we would be in our words. Jesus knew, and we can expect nothing less of him. He knew this was it. He knew that as each minute the clock ticked, it ticked louder for him, like a funeral drum. The cross that had cast its shadow over the whole of Jesus' life, now somehow towered above him in a new way. Its agonizing horror, the Bible tells us, had begun to overwhelm him. The one who'd been so calm, who had known such peace, the one so in control, now in deep distress, trembling to the core, sick with dread. And then they arrived, Jesus and his disciples, at the house for this one last time. Press pause for a moment as they enter the house. What do you imagine happened inside as the darkness of death begins to descend on our Saviour? You might have imagined the disciples flocking around him in love and support. Suddenly the one so strong, now so weak. The one so invincible, now frighteningly vulnerable. The disciples now able to be for him what he had always been for them. But no. Are they still busy talking about which one is the greatest? Are they arguing about the seating plan, moaning about the journey, the things they had to carry, the tiredness of their legs, the busyness of the streets? Have they noticed? Please, please don't say they haven't noticed. No, they don't even seem to have spotted it. How could they not have seen the trembling in his hand, the sob in his voice, the moistness of his eyes? How could they be so blind? to the man that was before them. And so like blind men in a fog, they just can't see. They seem to be able to see no further than their own selfish agenda. Caught up in their own emotion, cannot see past the centre of their own world. Don't be too hard on them. They're just like you and just like me. And then if you dare, press play and watch. Watch what happened next. But before we do, let's remind ourselves of the things that we need to know. It was, of course, the Middle East, where the sun was hot and the roads were thick with dirt. And people wore sandals because it was the only thing that was comfortable in the heat. Foot washing, therefore, was not a pursuit of the wealthy out in some country spa, but a necessity of everyday life. And however however necessary it was, it was such a menial 
demeaning task. So they left it for the slave at the bottom of the pile. Who prepared the meal for the disciples that night? We don't know. Was there a resident slave in the house? It seems there wasn't. Because when they get to the meal, they're about to recline, quite literally lie down side by side. But their feet are still covered in grit. And the air is still heavy with sweat. And the basin still sits in the corner, untouched. The towel lies on the floor, unused. And the servant's clothing hangs on the hook, unworn. Everyone knows what they're there for, but no one moves. Why hadn't one of the disciples done it? Why? Because it wouldn't have crossed their minds. You simply did not wash the feet of your peers. Thank you very much. Like us so often, they were locked in their cultural ghetto. They were chained to the conventions of their day and they couldn't break out however much they might have wanted to. Not even this night for Jesus in all his harrowing distress. They could not break out of those chains of culture and convention that were so tight around them. So press play, if you dare. Watch what happens next, if you can bear it. As no one moves, Jesus moves. As they bicker, Jesus stands. And in a stunning, scandalous inversion of custom, in an act of the most provocative condescension, he takes off his clothes, puts on a towel, quite literally wraps an apron a servant's apron around him, and washes their feet. Jesus, totally untouched by social barriers, totally untouched by cultural norms and human convention. Don't you just love him? Totally untouched by all the rubbish that binds us. He does what we should have done. He does what they should have done. Stunned silence now except for the thud of jaws hitting the floor. They would never have seen anything like this in the whole of their lives. Nothing equaled this in any way, shape or form. They'd never seen their culture so upside down, their convention so inverted. As so unassumingly, the master makes his way around the room. Wasn't it enough that in the morning these hands would be pierced to a cross? Must they really scrub grime tonight? The hands of God washing the feet of men. It's not right, you'll agree. It can never be right. How can it possibly be right? All wrong, upside down. Shouldn't Nathaniel be getting the water and Thomas carrying the towel? Shouldn't James be putting the shoes on? But they don't. No one does. And John, as if we need reminding, wants us to be certain of a few things. He wants us to know what was going on. Had Jesus momentarily forgotten who he was? Had he in a moment of madness lost sight of the pecking order? No. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew, John writes, that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew, said John, he knew that if there was anyone in the whole of creation who did not need to wash those feet that night, it was him. Everything was under his power. 
He was below no one. In fact, he came from God. He was outside of time. He will go back to God. He will last beyond time. No one. No one. So why? Why do it? Especially now, as the horror of the cross was filling his soul. Why? Love. Love. Keep going back to verse 1 now. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And you notice a footnote in the NIV, a, a different translation, different manuscripts. He loved them till the last. How could he possibly let social convention get in the way of loving them? How could he possibly let the ridiculous trappings of power stop him from loving them? How could he possibly uh, buy into the culture, the convention of the day, the hierarchy of rank and file, if it prevented him loving his disciples? The language is very strong. And we've seen Jesus like this before. Can you remember it was a Sabbath day and they brought in a man with a withered hand? And Jesus did not give Huppens halfpenny. Huppens halfpenny about the Sabbath rules. He said, stretch out your hand, and the man was healed. And so here he bulldozes through the barriers of culture and class. This was love. This was love that would not stop, that would not relent until 3 p.m. the following day when he would cry in agony on the cross, it is finished. It's over, love, till the last. Having loved his own, it says. Like a mother gathers a new baby to her breast, this one's mine. So Jesus gathered those disciples around that final meal table and said, these are mine. These are mine with all their ridiculous bickering and with all their damaged emotions and with all their pride and their sinfulness and their failings and all the mess that they've made of so much. These are mine. These are mine. It's nothing my parents like more than when the whole family is together. When all the children are home and their spouses and the grandchildren. We gather around the meal table. And my parents just sit there. These are mine. For all their faults and their failings, these are mine and we'll love them and we'll love them till the last. And so with Jesus, what a glorious picture of these disciples with all their faults and their failings that we'll hear so much about in a few moments. He gathers them round the table. He says, whatever's going on in your world, whatever's dark about you, these are mine. Hallelujah. But it's nothing to what's coming, you know. What exactly did it mean he loved them till the last? What does it really mean that he showed them the full extent of his love? Was washing their feet the ultimate self-sacrifice? The supreme act of self-giving? It was an incredibly humbling thing to do. But at the end of the day, he washed their feet that would soon be dirty again. Surely John is pointing to something more. He showed them the full extent of his love. It was love till the last. What did John mean? And then a few verses later, Jesus gives us a clue that there's so much more going on in this story before us. Because when Jesus gets to Peter, and Peter's all awkward and embarrassed about having his feet washed, uh, and Jesus, after a little exchange, says to him, Peter, you do not realize now what I'm doing. But later, but later, you will understand. 
It's as if Jesus is saying, Peter and the rest of you, listen in. There's no one here who can quite see what's actually happening now, but later you will see what you cannot see at the moment. What I'm doing points ahead to something else. It's a sign, a symbol, and later you will understand. What you can't see clearly now, later you will. That something later can only be the cross. The cross that by now was towering over every thought and action of Jesus. It's easy for us because we know what happened. We know what was just hours away. Easy for us to see, but they couldn't. And so Jesus said later, as they looked back, they would fully understand that as he was stooping to wash the disciples' feet, he was acting out before them a parable, a prefiguring of the cleansing, the washing he would do as he was stooping from heaven to die on the cross. Firstly then, Jesus washed their feet as a symbolic enactment, a sign of all that was coming as he died on the cross. Just as the meal itself with its bread and wine would point towards the death he was about to die, So now the washing of the feet points there too. With your Bibles open, let me use the language a a little more literal than we have in the NIV, a little bit closer to uh, the Greek. Verse 4, Jesus laid down his clothes. The exact same words that Jesus himself used just a couple of chapters earlier when he said, I will lay down my life. And then in verse 12 it talks of him taking up his clothes Again, the very words that Jesus talked about a few chapters earlier of taking up his life again. You can read all about that in John chapter 10. This this mimicking of what was about to happen on the cross. It makes sense of why Jesus said to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Not the washing of grit from feet. What did that really matter at the end of the day? But the cleansing of dirt from our lives. And as Jesus makes the personal sacrifice, gets up from the table, takes off his clothes, puts on the servant's apron and wraps the towel around him to bring cleansing to their feet. He is in the starkest of terms, prefiguring what was just hours away. What he would later do as the clothes would be torn from his body and he would make that ultimate self-sacrifice for our cleansing. For the washing away of the dirt, picked up not from a Middle Eastern road, but the washing away of the dirt, the mire, the filth, the stench that each one of us has picked up on the journey of our lives. And so he would show us the full extent of his love. And so he said to Peter, later, you will understand. It is later. Do you understand? Can you see the full extent of his love? Not so much a bowl and towel, but some nails and a cross and a crown of thorns. However utterly remarkable this foot washing story is, it's nothing compared to the cross. The condescension of a bowl and towel, nothing compared to what Paul would describe as he writes to the Philippian church of the self 
emptying of God. God who was full of himself, made himself nothing, becoming a man, not just a man but a servant, to die not just any death but death on a cross. How poignant that the hands that within hours would be nailed, pinned to the wood for the cleansing of the soul, were now gently, generously, open-heartedly washing their feet. Foot washing was a service rendered to people to show them hospitality. As you went into somebody's house, you would expect them, as a matter of uh, polite dignity, to arrange for your feet to be washed. It was the service to cleanse you from the journey. How much more do we need cleansing from the journey of our lives? The mud and the mire and the guilt and the dross that you've collected along life's road. How much more do we need that cleansing? You see, the cross is the place that washes us clean. That's what Jesus wanted them to understand. He knew they couldn't quite see it, but one day he said, later you will. It's not just the place that washes us clean, but it's also the place that welcomes us home. You see, the act of foot washing was the wide embrace of Middle Eastern welcome. It was saying, you belong here, you are welcome here, you're accepted here. It was the incredible welcome, the amazing acceptance the Master gave by personally washing the feet of peasant fishermen, rogue tax collectors, and a few other no-hopefuls that was in a few hours to be totally dwarfed by the welcome he was to offer the whole of the world as his arms were pinned wide. So not surprisingly, the beginning of John chapter 14 He talks of the Father's welcome. In my house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. That's what it was all about. He was going to the Father. Why? To prepare a place for you. The cross, the place of welcome. As he washed those disciples' feet, as they felt welcomed and accepted by him, despite all their guilt and embarrassment, it was absolutely nothing compared to the welcome that would happen in a few hours' time. How incredible would it be for Jesus to stoop and wash your feet? How much greater still is stooping from heaven to wash our hearts and welcome us home. Have you seen it? You understand I've got to ask today, have you seen it? What the disciples were really struggling to see, they were awkward and embarrassed, they knew they didn't deserve this, but then what was coming, they certainly didn't deserve. Neither do I, neither do you. A gift a gift. If you've never understood, look hard at what happened on that cross. For 2,000 years, people all over the world have discovered that it was for me, for you, for us. Please be seated. But Jesus goes on. He doesn't want to leave them thinking it was just some symbolic act. It was more than that. It had an immediate reality. It was an act of love itself that they too should jolly well learn to mimic. He washed their feet as a supreme example. I've set you an example that you should do what I have done. 
Some groups have taken this command quite literally and maintain the practice, the ritual of foot washing, now long after the dusty roads and the heat of the day. Those who uh, do are scarcely unmoved by the very loving act of foot washing. But perhaps to take it so literally may well be for us to miss the point. But it's a command that we must take seriously, even if not literally. What, what did he mean to go do that same kind of thing? Well, it's about hospitality and it's about inclusion. It's about acceptance and embrace. It's about doing the job that nobody wants to do. It's about doing the job you think you're too puffed up and too important to do. It's about saying the barriers of culture and the chains of convention will not matter anymore in a new community where love will rule and all barriers will fall. Remember at preaching at Christmas time about why God the Father chose the manger for his son. Goodness gracious, if you were choosing a place for your son to be born, you wouldn't have chosen Bethlehem's manger. But he did it because there was nothing to prove. Why not? Why could Jesus bend and wash those disciples' feet when they couldn't do what he did for them? What was it about Jesus? It was his total security. And this verse that we've looked at already reminds us. You see, Jesus was secure in his origin. He knew he came from God. He was secure in his destiny. He knew he was returning to God. He was secure in God's authority, God's stamp of approval on his life. And in the warmth of security that he had with his heavenly Father. He stooped to wash their feet. You see, people go through the whole of their lives trying to prove themselves. It's hard to live like that. If you're trying to prove yourself today, you will live an exhausted life. And if you're living with somebody else, it's hard for them too. It's an exhausting place to be. But we live like that so often. And we do it because we aren't secure. We haven't discovered who we are, where we're from, or uncertain about where we're going. We haven't heard that stamp of approval from heaven. You're mine. You're mine. What is there to prove? Well, these disciples thought they had everything to prove. If I wash his feet, he will think that he's better than me. If I wash that person's feet, then they will think, oh, I'm good for nothing except for washing feet. So they were trapped in their convention, trapped by their insecurity. They simply ignored the needs of one another. And then Jesus, without embarrassment or loss of face, bent to wash their feet. Unlike us, he was free from the incessant demand to prove himself. Unlike us, he was free from the pressure, the trapping of keeping up appearances. So without artifice or self-denigration, he stooped low in this humility and service. What a fantastic God. Can you imagine God doing something like that? What a fantastic, free, and liberating kind of God. And this is your God, the one who isn't trapped, who's free to love whatever love demands. Your God. And in Him, there is power to be like Him. In Him, for all those who've known what it is to be washed and welcomed, There is that ability to live with nothing to prove. That freedom, that freedom to live from that so destructive insecurity that makes us assert ourselves against our neighbour 
over and over and over again. Our God's free, and he calls us to that freedom. When I survey the wondrous cross, where the young prince of glory died, my richest gain, my puffed up pride, my bigotry, my arrogance, all of it I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. So spend a moment giving to God those things that stop us being free to love. Things that stop us being free to love our spouses, our family, our children, our parents, our work colleagues, as we should. That fight to prove ourselves, to make sure everybody knows we're somebody. Can't we hear the Father in heaven say, you're mine. Can't that be enough? And if I'm God's, all proving is over. There's nothing left to prove. A child of the King, a son of the Father, who fills all of heaven and earth. With that security, help me love. Help me reach my neighbor, my friend, my spouse, my children. We give you our puffed up pride, our trumped up arrogance, our asserting ourselves over others, our making ourselves feel better by making others feel low. Oh God, we're sorry. Cleanse us, renew us at your cross, we pray. Help us, oh God, for the honor of Jesus. And then just finally that part of the chapter that we didn't hear read, but it goes on to talk about two men, Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter. Jesus washed their feet as a searching exposure. Judas was to go out into the night. If you don't know the story, he was to go to the Romans and to sell uh, uh, Jesus with a kiss, to betray him with a kiss. And then a few verses later, it talks about Peter. Peter, who made such promises of standing by Jesus. Will you really lay down your life for me, Jesus said in response, before the cock crows three times. Sorry, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. These men, Judas and Peter, that have so much in common. They both had been friends with Jesus. They were both part of his inner circle. They were both key men on his team. Neither were particularly immoral or evil. They would never have survived three years with Jesus if they had been. Like the other disciples, they had their ups and downs, their good points and their bad. And to both these men, Jesus gave his love and appeal. Notice at verse, five, verse 12, it says that Jesus finished washing their feet. He'd washed all their feet. Judas' feet, Peter's feet. But then in the final hours of Jesus' mission, when he needed them most, both abysmally failed him. Both abandoned him. Both grieved Jesus' heart and added to his pain. Both their failures were 
spectacularly public. And both failures are still known around the world today. Two men with so much in common. But listen, one was lost and the other was saved. One repented, sought Christ's mercy and went to heaven. The other, overwhelmed with remorse, turned upon himself and took his own life. Which one are you? Because actually we're both like Judas. We're like both Judas and Peter, really. We so often look at the story as if we are outsiders looking in. We're appalled by Judas and pretty angry with Peter. Yet the seeds of failure of both Peter and Judas lie within you and also within me. We know what it is to deny Jesus with our words and our actions. We know what it is to betray him with our lives. We're all too like them. Frighteningly like them. So what was the difference? How come one lost, the other saved? Peter was saved because he came back. Peter was saved because he came back. And in coming back, he discovered the cleansing, the washing, the welcome of the cross. Maybe one day you rushed out into the night as Judas did. For whatever reason, you made a terrible mistake, a dreadful choice. Or like Peter, you've promised so much and delivered so little. And today, you're not sure if you're welcome back. You're not sure if he's had it with you. You're not sure if it's over. Will he ever want you again? Will you ever have a part to play on his team? Don't be like Judas and never find out. Discover what Peter did, that the same arms that stretched out to wash his feet with the same arms that stretched wide on the cross were to be the same arms that on a beach the next time they would meet would be open wide in love and welcome and forgiveness a new beginning. In fact one of the first words of Jesus to Mary was this, go tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter, Peter who had failed so much, so needed to hear. Go and tell Peter in all his failure that Jesus still loves him, that he's still alive, risen from the dead, and still wants him on his team. Are you like Peter this morning? You're crushed and broken by the choices that you've made. You feel guilty and lost because of the decisions that you took. You step down into the darkness and you wish you'd never had It's not over. Come back. Come back. The cross can still wash you clean. The cross still welcomes you. And that and nothing else, surely, is the full extent of his love. That, if nothing else, is love till the last, isn't it? Love beyond measure, beyond limits, love to the uttermost, love that that never ceases or fails, love that the waters of death will never quench, love so penetrating that it will flush out the evil from the last grubby recesses of all our hearts. God's love burning like a fire in Jesus that will stop at nothing till its goal is achieved. Love that will pay any price at personal expense to win us back. How can we see the love in our dying Saviour and not embrace his new commandment that he gave them round the table that night? Love one another as I have loved you.